0: we have...
1: good oh, yeah. G'day. Steve Baxter here from uh, 1013, early stage, fully aligned tech startup investment syndicate working out of Brisbane.
0: Well, that was nice and succinct. When did you first get involved in the ecosystem, probably before we had all this vocabulary around it as well?
1: Yeah, look, well, I started my first, I, I, it became an ecosystem probably 20 years after I got involved, I, I want to say. Um, I first got started in entrepreneurship. Um, back in 1994 when I was a 23-year-old full-time soldier working out of Adelaide. Decided to install 14 telephone lines into my bedroom, one of my bedrooms, and uh, started to all up ISP. So that was, um, that was all um, fully funded. I suppose it, it, we call it bootstrapping nowadays. Um, back then we just called it taking a home loan deposit and risking it. So that's what we did there, and we grew that to be quite a substantial business, probably
0: the seventh or eighth largest internet service provider in Australia at the time. So, not 94. This is probably going to be a really silly question, but what did the ecosystem, or what did the community in terms of you know the entrepreneurial community look like um, from your well, perspective? Didn't. So, I
1: was I was in Adelaide essentially. So, uh, yeah, to be quite honest, it was uh, we started a business back then. We were you know um, managing directors and business founders. The, uh, excuse me, we were managing directors, and I had a business partner. I never knew the word uh, CEO, co-founder or founder back then, to be quite blunt. It didn't, even, didn't really exist in the vocabulary. Um, we ran a retail-facing small business that turned to be quite a substantial, you know, medium-sized Australian business, I suppose. So aside from working inside my industry sector in Adelaide, and I imagine you're in Sydney, are you, Adam? Uh, a little bit north of Sydney, Newcastle. No worries. So um, you know, essentially, if you're not in Sydney in Australia, no one really cares about you. Um, we had uh, we had thought leaders in the largest ISPs in Australia, leading conversations in national newspapers, and, and we had seven times more customers and revenue than them. So, you know, if if you're not on the east coast, you're not in the city. No one tends to give a toss about you, to be honest. So Adelaide, we were somewhat insular, um, not of our own choosing, but because you know, I suppose that the thought centres tended to ignore people who weren't someone they could drive to um and you know it's such we, we did a lot of networking in amongst our community i, I helped start something i, I helped out um because there was a lot of competitors so when i started that business it was probably i don't know it was probably the, the, the 20th or the 30th isp in australia uh, when i sold it there was 1200 and by the time i fully exited it, it was 700 and that was over a period of about six years so very much boom bust it feels a bit like that now in the startup space everyone's jumping on that bandwagon coming out of the woodwork all of a sudden and being an expert it's really quite fascinating to watch again so, uh, we did several endeavors where we had to work together as, as competitors. We had, we had one real problem in our industry, and that still exists with people in that business, and that's Telstra. Um, Telstra was our biggest supplier and our biggest, it was our only supplier and our biggest competitor. So, we tended to band together as a competitive industry and to, to help each other out in a wholesale sense, buying power sense. To, to, it's not the best description, but it's, it's the best one they'll do today without a wider description. Um, and so you know, I networked a lot, and I, I suppose, I, I got to understand the value of business networking because I had to go and talk to my competitors and say, you know, guys, if we keep flogging each other to death, Telford is just going to come and murder us, so we need to start working together.
0: Well, that is hard for me to comprehend that in 94, um, there were, what did you say, 30 or 40 ISP providers already? Was that the number you said?
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah.
0: That, that's internet service provider right we're talking about the same thing here i didn't really kind of understand that internet was that big of a thing even to have 30 to 40 providers um and six months later it would have been 100 and six months later it would have been
1: 300 and 12 months later it would have been 600 you know things go in cycles things go on booms and busts so it, it's it's a part of the natural natural sort of uh enterprise you know day-to-day or year-to-year decade-to-decade thing things go up and things go down but literally there was 1200 at the peak within like four or five years it was 1200
0: what um what motivated you to, to decide to put install what was it thirty phone lines?
1: It was fourteen to start with, yeah. So we think we took, took it up to, to thirty in our house before we moved out and actually got a real premises.
0: But what made you think oh I want to start a an ISP? You're going to ask that question a lot, and, and it, it's hard to remember the actual
1: motivating factor. I um my my wider background is I, I grew up in Central Queensland. I pretty well failed high school, left at uh, grade eleven. Joined the Army as a full-time soldier at 15, when they recruit 15-year-olds. So my first job was as a, uh, so I carried a rifle for nine years for this country, so uh, as a soldier, um, but we were mostly a peacetime army at that point in time. Um, whilst I enjoyed, um, whilst I had immense pride in that occupation, it was a pretty boring job, to be quite honest, there's nothing nothing worse than not being allowed to do what you're trained to do. I uh, mean, you know, things changed about five years after I got out, things got a little bit hot. I started uh, learning about computers. i had been a bit of a fascination with technology. So I uh, did some courses, uh, learned about computers, learned about programming, installed this weird thing called Linux on, on, a, on a spare PC we had at home, and um, realized that you could plug 14 modems into the back of this thing and, and, and people could dial up and you could, you know, you could run a business. So it was um, a really good mate from Shark Tank, Glenn Richards. He has a, a saying, which is, an entrepreneurial seizure moment. So it's like the, the experienced technician who thinks he can run a business. It was something along those lines, I suppose. It seemed really, it seemed really easy and it seemed... The, the funny part was is, you know, I was going to these computer user groups and, and I managed to look over the shoulder one night of someone who successfully got the windowing system for Linux installed, which was back then, no mean fact. There's like 120 floppy disks just to give you some idea. I saw someone using a web browser. And I knew instantly the world was going to change. I can vividly remember where I was. It was a a bloke's garden, it was a shed in his backyard where he set his computers up. And I remember just thinking, I've got to get into this. You could instantly see what was going to happen. So by the time I'd actually convinced my now wife then fiance to spend our $11,000 home loan deposit. This one homes were costing 125 grand in Adelaide. So we almost had a home, right? That um, I was going to take all this money, buy some computer bits, put it together in the bedroom and, and hey presto, And I hadn't at that stage even used a web browser.
0: Huh. Wow, uh, was there anything that, apart from that, you know, learning the importance of networking um, that come out of that, what was it, 94 to roughly 01 kind of time, uh, that any lesson that you've taken out of that that has served you really well um, in, in subsequent ventures?
1: Yeah, there was, I suppose. So it was the importance of, i lots of things. So, you know, the, the importance of being able to understand a set of books, um, at least you know, be a pretty decent cash flow accountant or bookkeeper, if, if, if nothing else. Um, the importance of team. I came out of the army. I knew the importance of team. I knew the importance of briefing people well and other bits and pieces and having plans. It taught me to hate monopolies. And, you know, Telstra was such a, and still is such a corrosive force in that industry. It's incredible. Because we've given ourselves another monopoly with MDN. Isn't that the stupidest idea ever? Excuse me. So you know, it did, did teach me a lot. Um, you know, basic business operations. It taught me a lot about people. You know, we went through a mini recession in that business, and none of you know probably very few of the people, the younger people, would actually have any clue what happens during a recession. But if you own a business and you don't sleep because of it, you don't sleep for months because all of a sudden you can't pay people. Literally, like you know, it, it's it, it's it's debilitating. And I you know, thank God people haven't gone through it, but it's also leading to um, it's also led into some pretty crazy economic behavior in the, in the market at the moment. And it has for the last sort of, you know, 10, 15 years.
0: You know, you had that massive realization around web browsers and the internet that got you started in S.E. Net. Obviously, the, the startup ecosystem didn't exist at that point or, or even any kind of... Were, were there any precursors that you noticed? That you, because because what changed between kind of 01 Startup Pipe Networks to, to founding, you know, about 10 years later, at River City Labs and realizing that we need to start a co-working space we need to get entrepreneurs together. Like what changed in that 10 years to switch you from purely entrepreneur, small business owner to this world of founders and startups and uh, high growth companies?
1: Yeah, well for me, I didn't really wanna run a business again, to be honest. I mean, I, I, tend, to, I tend to buy to them quite hard. I tend to treat them quite seriously. And, and as a result, joyfully consuming, but but probably to my detriment so um and so I, I sort of knew that so with, with with scnet my first business you know we worked quite hard in that business and managed to sell that with pipe networks similarly you know we, we sort of went went a thousand miles an hour and you know to and, and jeopardized health uh because you it it shouldn't do that i could have done that smart and don't get me wrong and so i you know all through that so that that's it you know, on a personal level that is well i didn't want to do that again to be quite honest i didn't want to i didn't want the adrenaline and it is, it's, it's adrenaline, and it's, it's a weird background adrenaline of, you know, working the sort of 70, 80 hours a week and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, so, you know, it's a lot of fun being an investor, to be honest, so, you know, being able to, to sit back and to hear people's hopes, dreams, aspirations and other bits and pieces and, and be able to fund them and, and, and get on that journey and, and you know, and, and back them not just with capital, but with, you know, with experience and networks and mentorship and whatever you want to call it. Um, but that, that's personally, but, but what changed in the meantime was, I mean, a bunch of things changed. I mean, essentially, computers got really cheap, networks got really cheap, you know, whereas, you know, when we did pipe networks, we had to put into place like, you know, our mail infrastructure for our business was, you know, a couple of big honking um, exchange servers and two data centers. It was like a two, $300,000 investment to support about sort of 40 staff, if you know what I mean. And now it's like, what, 11 bucks a month at Office 365? So, so what changed was the commoditization of computers, and essentially the access to networks. So that allowed a lot less capital to be deployed in order to get a similar outcome. Um, and that's bad for Australia. I mean, there's nothing good in that statement for Australia. So um, it, used to, it used to protect us, and, and now it's an absolute element of risk for us.
0: What, what made you decide to um, actually go ahead and start River City Labs? So, I, um, so uh, we started Pipe Networks in 2001, we listed that in 2005, oh, I left there as a full-time
1: exec in 2008, went and worked in Google in California for about a year, returned to Australia on the sale of Pipe Networks um, fully by sort of early 2010 when we executed the sale. I got back and relit some networks and I wanted to be out of the telco space. Then I uh, started to do a little bit of dabbling and met some people, help them out with a bit of capital, a bit of experience. I found myself going to Sydney more and more to talk to people. I, I um, saw what had um, started down at Fishburners and Harris Street down there in, in Ultimo and thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'll go back to Brisbane and find the Fishburners in Brisbane. And there was nothing really there. There was a bunch of really drab spaces, probably you know, best to call incubators of the day, run by universities. Incubators are the things that keep babies alive, not that they're green. You know I, mean? I think it's a really poor term for a business, to be honest. And then I thought, well, okay, how hard can it be? It's some office space and, and you know, a little bit of a flexible mindset, and let's get into it. It turned out it was very hard. So especially in a town where everyone's got a second and third spare bedroom, and, and the traffic ain't that bad, and no one really give a stuff about um, cheap desk space, right?
0: So we had to pretty, we had to alter what we did there pretty, um, pretty radically. Uh, what ex- what exactly about Fishburners? What was it that you found really attractive about that that, that made you go, we need to do, this, we need to, you know, do this in Brisbane?
1: Um. To me, it had a clubhouse feel, and there was people in there, it was a bit noisy, it was a bit, had a bit of a bizarre feel about it, as you know, a market bizarre, and it felt like there was energy. And so I wanted to sort of replicate that. It was, it was right. a little bit of exciting just to, to look at you know, people being busy and, and a little bit noisy. And, and their stated goal was to
0: bring together investors and startups. Either speaking from a Brisbane, Queensland point of view, or, or nationally, what do you think some of the gaps are that, that are in the ecosystem at the moment? Like, what, what's wrong with how it all works, maybe, and, and where can we improve? Be
1: careful in terms of the ecosystem. Having been involved in it, around this space for so long, it's, it's this thing that people want to buy into. It feels like the soft, cuddly thing, if you know what I mean. And, it, and it's good that we can talk it about in those sort of terms. But in the day, it's about creating an environment where we encourage lots of risk. And hopefully, out of lots of risk comes lots of success. So, also for my sins, I spent a year as chief entrepreneur up here in Queensland. Um, in sort of 2018, I got to carry this amazing business card around and I went and visited everyone in the state and purposely kept out of the South East Queensland corner because there was lots going on. So did a lot of travel. So the, the term ecosystem I find frustrating because to, to me, you know, business is about creating wealth, creating wealth in every sense of the term, creating wealth for the, the owners of the businesses and, and the people who work in them and the community in general. And then you have to understand who, who, who can do what um, in this entire, um, in, in this entire segment of the market. And most of this stuff falls to federal governments, for example. So most of the stuff I always think is about less regulation. Um, because to me, that there's very little government, for example, can do to affect an operating business. So there's, there's very little non-punitive things a government can do to affect an operating business. But the one thing, if, if, if you want to change how businesses operate, is you encourage more people to compete. Because the one thing a CEO surely fears is loss of revenue. I think we've seen from the banking inquiry, they don't even fear doing the wrong thing and going to jail, right? But they have a far bigger fear. Every CEO, every business leader has a fear of loss of market. And so the way you and, and you can't mandate that through through things. The way you do that is just to encourage more people to get into business. So for me, everything I go to when I talk about ecosystems, how do we encourage more people to get into business? Um, so all my answers are really quite bland and then they're not as demandy as a lot of others and, but they are also born of 25 years of entrepreneurship and, and, and probably close to about 12 years of, of trying to make things actually work. I can list them out if you want.
0: Oh, please do, And but just before you do, you beat me to the answer, because earlier when I mentioned the word ecosystem and, and you said it um, back to me in an answer, I, I, I sensed um, that you were saying it through your teeth. Um, and that you didn't quite like it. So thank you for, for, for answering that. And that's, that's a great, a great answer. I don't even like the term ecosystem. And I've said it so much that even saying it, like it hurts me to say it at this point. Um, but, but I can't think of any other way to really describe it succinctly um, to what we're trying to build, this, this environment that we're trying to build that will enable more entrepreneurship to happen.
1: Yeah, well, well, exactly. That's why I've used, you know, I've been using terms like market sector and, and focus areas and you know, other 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 fluffy stuff. Um, because to me, it, it, it's 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 of these fuzzy words it should be okay, but it just covers so much crap. And people tend to get a. Oh, it's because I'm doing it for the eco. It's not the word failure. The fact, word failure is so freaking abused. Um, it covers so much stuff, and it, it's just the the wrong approach, if you know what I mean. So, um, but you know, if we are talking talking about ecosystems, if we had the camera turned on, you'd see my air quotes. Um, the, you know, the, the things we need to do to encourage more people to start businesses, which is essentially what this is, right, is yeah. we would actually make it, you know, this is a very motherhood and milk statement, I tell this to politicians all the time, they think I'm taking the piss out of them. So if we want more people to start businesses, we should make it easier for them to start businesses. So there, there's a level of regulation, which is point stupid. So let's get into some of that, but, but still the things around employee share option plans. So back in 2009. That the mind-numbingly stupid ALP government at the time um, essentially modified the employer options arrangement and pretty well stopped them for six years. It didn't change until the coalition put somewhat put it back, not quite all the way back in 2015. So, and it's still and it's still not it's not as easy as it could be. So, um, making it really easy for businesses to issue instead of paying their staff cash to issue them equity in the success of that enterprise, removing any impediment to people investing in the startups. So you know, we have a country where you can lose your house on a horse race but not a startup. So, you know, about making the ability to access capital for startups a lot easier. So there's something out there called the 2012 rule, for example. So it basically says that every 12 months you can approach 20 people to invest up to $2 million in your business without with, with a very, very... Almost uh, regulation-free environment. Why don't we just increase that to five million bucks, for example, and 40 investors? So there's there's a lot of very simple things that we can do. One of the good things that Malcolm Turnbull did, and I have got no love for his prime ministership, I think that his Nisa plan back in 2000, I want to say 16 or 17, National Innovation Science Agenda, uh, which was essentially a 2.1 billion dollar plan, of which 1.9 billion dollars was lollies to universities. Now, I think the university sector is a net negative for innovation in this country when it comes to um, startups. So I have a real problem in the university sector. But one of the good things he had out of that was the direct the, the, the Corporations Act changes. So he brought in um, changes to bankruptcy, contractual law, a bunch of other things to take us more towards US Chapter 11. And if you wonder why I'm talking about you know bankruptcy and stuff, the reality is that most of these businesses fail. Most of these startups don't work. So what we want, and the people the people who go through that process need to tidy it up, need to pay the creditors out, pay the staff, do the right thing, get back into the game as fast as possible with as fewer penalties as possible, because they've just had one hell of an education. So all that stuff you brought in there, which had such a small impact on the budget, if any, to be honest, it was all regulatory change. Removing regulation in a lot of cases um, was, was is really, really quite good. The, other, the good thing about the, the only other good thing about NISA in, in, in that... Uh, from that from that program was the ESIC stuff. Uh, um, so early stage innovation company tax, once again, this is about access to capital. So this is about giving tax incentives to investors to invest in very early stage, potentially risky companies. So um, I, I think it was a good start and we, we can definitely move the boundaries on the ESICs. We can make the, the, the time tests and the revenue tests and other bits and pieces so that it could encompass more businesses, not less. Um, but otherwise, I think those those two are good things. So that's, you know, access to capital, how to, how to run, start a business, um, bringing in talent. Access to talent is a huge thing. It's one of the best plans I had uh, was that where I had a dinner one night with uh, it was the old industry minister um, Ian McFarlane, um, and he literally brought people together asking about how we how do we, how do we attract Peter Thiel to Australia, and what do we have to do? Was was he was asking us? So you know, it was really good that I reached reached at industry, but. In in a moment of sheer brilliance, and I've actually he's mentioned it since, and he said he doesn't recall saying this. I call it the Mike Cannon-Brooks plan. He said, "Why don't we just write to the top 100 graduates, IT graduates, of the top 200 universities in the world, and invite them to come in a really cheap, easy pathway every year?" So access to access to the right skills, and and, and we shouldn't be picking those winners, providing they're high tech, young, well trained. You know, don't don't preface. It's most likely only software, because that's where the world's going. But don't don't preface rockets or oh, hydrogen. Excuse me, what the latest folly that is? For Christ's sakes, so just preface young, high tech, highly skilled, and then let the market work it out. So that's some of my rants. I probably probably monologued a bit too much on you there, uh, Adam. Sorry about that.
0: No, that was amazing. Um, in a perfect world, like if you were in charge of everything, what what are the top three things you would implement to to make this country? Uh, more competitive and and make entrepreneurship easier for people.
1: i would reduce the price of energy, and I'll give you a very unpopular answer. I'm going to do that. It's how we've done it in the past, and how we should be doing it right now. You know, the the one stable thing that underpins our entire economy is energy, and to make it expensive and unreliable, we will not see my daughters live a healthy, a wealthy life in, in, in later years. That's just going to set your audience off because you know this this ecosystem is basically <laughs> full of raving lefties. Um, when it comes to tech startups. I think I've sort of covered it there. You know, I would make access to capital drippingly easy. So you you may be aware, have you heard of ESVCLP before? Early-stage venture capital limited partnerships. Basically, the the investors into VC firms get capital gains tax-free out of that firm, out of those investments. There's a whole bunch of rules around that. There's a whole bunch of things. It's got to be Australian businesses, and it's got to be this and that, and there's a bunch of rules there. And and if people listen to this, they go, that's not right. You know, it's not in all cases, but but essentially, if you're granted ESVCLP status as a venture fund, you get to return, uh, you get to pass through the capital gains without, you know, capital gains tax-free to investors. Get your own tax advice. I'll also say that at the end. And which is good that the government wants to encourage investments into early-stage risky businesses, and they will also want to build a venture capital industry. Why isn't it that every other angel investor who's investing in those businesses can't get access to the same benefits without having to pay... A VC firm twenty percent of the profits and two percent a year to manage it. So you know I, I would really open up that if if we care about early stage high-tech risky investment, I would remove the barriers. Uh, I'm also a libertarian, right? so I'm not a huge fan of any government regulation. So but access to capital, I've already talked about access to um, making making a lot easier for businesses to start business and to do things like pay their employees and shares without having punitive tax rates apply. Access to inbound talent, is quite important. And Mike explain I think, is, is, is actually really good.
0: So that's probably four, is it, I think, mate? I think they're all pretty important, to be honest. Okay. So between 2010 and today, because a lot of people are saying, you know, 2012 seems to be the mark where this inverted commas ecosystem really started to gain momentum. Do you have any insight as to what you think maybe the, the drivers were behind that?
1: I definitely agree. It's probably the first half of the teens there somewhere. That would make sense. It'd be hard to argue a year either way. Do you have a sense of what happened then? No, I think I've already mentioned it. it, it it's it's the it's the commoditisation of of access to uh, so you know it, where it used to cost say quarter of a million dollars to get a decent you know probably in the early uh, early two thousands say quarter of a million bucks or at least over a hundred grand. No, probably probably quarter of a million bucks to have a, a decent IT setup where you could actually get some staff in an office and get things done. Um, that all of a sudden went to twenty grand, if it's that at all. And, and I mentioned before, so I think this is a real problem and still is a real problem for Australia because we used to be able to get access to two hundred and fifty thousand bucks. The, the the poor people sitting over in a flavella in Brazil or you know in the back blocks of Ukraine who didn't have access to so much capital couldn't do that. Right? Now it only costs like eleven bucks a month for an office account. And you need a, a you need a laptop and, and a mobile phone. That's achievable, right? So all of a sudden, because talents are evenly spread around the world. You know, talents evenly spread across gender and race and talents are evenly spread around the world, right? So essentially, we are trade exposed because there is no longer a capital barrier. And that's really, it's been urgent for about 10 years and it should only get more urgent because once you realise that, you realise how how easily we can be left behind.
0: You mentioned earlier you don't you think universities are horrible for innovation in Australia or something along those lines, mm. um, which is which is a real bummer for me and for this series because like fifteen of our sponsors are universities, uh, so so I don't know. they are no strangers to my opinion, Adam. Put it that way. <laughs> so I've been saying this for some time. I was actually on the
1: board of commercialisation Australia, which then became uh, accelerating commercialisation, and I think I was there for four board meetings and I, and I couldn't I could not believe. How much that that federal government program was being used to keep university projects alive that the free market said they didn't want. So the way I view it is, and I actually I actually call them a wet blanket for innovation. So they usually take too long to get the, the relevant sort of talent stream out through the universities. You know they're teaching kids the wrong stuff for too long and not not changing fast enough for market demands. And I appreciate universities are supposed to research as well, whatever. Uh, but, you know, if anyone views the amount of money we spend on R&D into universities at, as having a return, if that was a VC fund, you would have actually, you, you would have actually shot with a ball at the managers some time ago. Because for the amount that we spend, the amount we get back is, is an absolute travesty. And I say this as well because they're always, they rarely have a lead. So I started Riverside Labs because nothing was happening in Brisbane. Within 18 months, two of the universities had launched something very similar on the public purse. Now, I was using private money, so when I say they're a net suppressant for innovation, a lot of the times that they'll go up against the private sector because they think that they should be doing it. And the problem with the university is it's quite a large enterprise. I mean, the big ones call themselves sandstones. I mean, how crazy is that in a work from home world? They're proud of the fact they're called sandstones for shit's. Because they're a big business, they think they're a smart business. But what happens is that the, the, the government in this country, and probably as it should, because I'm a bit of a fan of the way we actually conduct our funding for universities, we have the HEC system. The government underwrite the debts and the revenue of the universities. And they've just open the doors and people will walk through, right? And they think they're clever. And I'm like, there's nothing clever about that at all. Um, but because they're a big enterprise, I think they're a clever enterprise. Not a chance in hell. So so for the most part, they're wet blanks of innovation. Yes, they do do research and stuff. I'm not denying that. I'm talking about the three quarters of what a university does. So. Um, They typically produce, or they have, sorry, the last few years been producing a very bland, entrepreneurially dull product. It's horrible talking about people with a product, but if their product is people coming out with with degrees, then it's um, somewhat behind uh, old-skilled and entrepreneurially dull. Have you researched me and understood what I did with Startup Catalyst?
0: Startup Catalyst is about one of the only things I didn't go deep on, but I know, was Colin um, Kinner, did he have anything to do with that? He was,
1: so Colin Kinner was my... Was one of the first uh, mission leads, so I, I got that pissed off with seeing these great young kids come to universities with some, you know, pretty good, pretty good degrees, and they pretty clever kids, and, and just going into absolute dead batshit boring jobs at the, you know, public service the big banks or the or the big corporations, um, and that's fine. Those those organisations need labour, so I'm not against that. But it, to me, it was a waste. And you know, I was going to Silicon Valley a lot, and I'd see young people over there who just had probably. Similar skills, not as good in a lot, most cases, to be honest, and and they were working on just bigger problems. So I was like, how do I change this? And, and so I can I can jump up and down, and scream, you know, scream and shake my arms like Kermit the Frog, or I can I can actually do something because I'm, I'm a massive complainer. But I think you need the buyer right to complain. So um, so I started a and we'll start up Catalyst in the first year. I took uh, uh, 20 kids over, I didn't get all 20 in the end. We we, we target that. I can't remember how it got, to be honest. Um, to Silicon Valley for two weeks. We took them to Google and Twitter and Facebook and AWS and all these places and literally showed them how Americans did stuff. VC firms, the, the whole thing. Um, I didn't make the first mission that day, actually, but my, uh, I was asked to go on the Shark Tank show just as, it started, um, just as the mission went over, so I missed the first every year. I went in the second year's one. Um, and took 20 kids over and dropped them inside of Silicon Valley for two weeks. These companies love getting these, these bright kids coming from Australia because they literally they don't need to have their, their best scientists and computer engineers in the room. They also have their recruiters in the room too, so they were trying to recruit them, which was hilarious. And you know in the middle, there was Startup Weekend, so we dropped 20 bright, young, future technical co-founders. It was techies only. I didn't want clueless people. I, I, clueless, clueless people in the startup space drive me insane. I took them over to Silicon Valley and, and literally tried to make them unemployable. Showed them that they're just as good as anyone over in America, uh, if not better. They're just working on shitty small problems, and they should lift. They should lift their horizons, lift their eyes up to the horizon, I should say. Um, so we did. We did quite a few of those over the years. I went in the second one. Um, we also subsequently did a subsequently did a startup uh, catalyst program for investors because I was seeing way too many angel investors, sometimes with big hearts, actually sometimes with just malice, but usually just with, with big hearts, doing the wrong thing and, and literally smothering the startups or investing in either. Because of silly monetary terms absolutely crazy non-monetary terms which are worse than silly monetary terms so you know we used to take we took a group of 12 we got it twice, then 12 or 15 investors over uh to, to instead of going to you know the, the technical arms of google twitter and facebook we went to a16z and we went to all the, the vc firms and the investment banks and people like that and we basically just sat down and, and, and showed them how americans invest in startups so yeah, so I, I think that there's a large education piece missing in Australia, and I've attempted to, to at least lead and show how we can look at filling that with the, especially with the startup catalyst during the program.
0: Yeah, are you are you familiar with the term, uh, the Aussie mafia? Yep. Yeah, that's a similar, like, some people have pointed to that as maybe one of the catalysts for the ecosystem really starting to pick up, but having all of those Aussies that spend a lot of time over in Silicon Valley, for example, coming back and bringing that, back that experience and and knowledge. That sounds like something that you have tried to, you know, replicate with Startup Catalyst in, in bringing some of that education back to, to our community. Um, I never quite viewed the Aussie mafia that way. I think they were very much a, a, a North Star bunch of people who were working in Silicon
1: Valley who demonstrated it was possible to move to the US and, 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 and get employed and or start a startup over there. So um, I didn't quite view them the way you are saying, but I mean, I think that they were important. The um, I think the biggest thing there Back to your question before, if I was, you know, God for a day, i had three things to do. What would I do? Um, one of the biggest, uh, well, I think, one of the best things is, is the E3 visa. The, the E3 treaty trade visa between us and the US is amazing. You I know, mean, if you've got a, a bachelor's level of education, or you've got, I think, equivalent of 12 years industry experience. I got my, I didn't have an education. I didn't finish high school, so I had to go over on the, on, the, on the equivalent experience test for the E3 visa. You can you can get a two-year visa, pretty well, almost infinitely renewable. Uh, and they you 10,000 things a year, and you can work and live in the US for two years. Um, that was massive, and you know, for so people who started doing that, um, and that was part of the US-Australia free trade agreement that think brought in in the, in the later years of our government. It was just incredible. So that was that was a, a big focus, and people doing that and doing that successfully. And now there's little there's little immigration mills. You know, you can go and set up your own company and employ yourself and this sort of stuff to make it really easy to get over there. And I think, you know, and I think that the, uh, you know, that if you wanted to actually, so if you wanted to actually supercharge the Australian tech startup scene, you'd, you know, and I don't want this to happen, but I, I think that, you know, if you were evil and wanted to do something, you'd actually convince the Americans to cancel every last e3 visa, and send, <laughs> and send all those Australians home. <laughs> um, you know, all these people, we've got engineering directors at Facebook who've got e3 visas, you know, there's, there's some, and they'd have to come home. I don't want that to happen, right? But it's probably it's a reflection or a statement for me of how many people I believe are over there getting that
0: experience. So how do we bring them back? Yeah, just a bit of a fun one. I ask everybody this question. You've probably been asked this a billion times. Um, what one piece of advice would you give a new founder?
1: I just do it.
0: When people pitch me ideas, I don't. They go, I an idea to pitch, and I said, you should just do it. Mm.
1: And they say, but I haven't told you the idea. And <laughs> I'm like, well. I'm probably not your customer, so why the hell are you asking my opinion? So you've got to launch what you're going to do, get it in front of a customer and let them decide, because no one else gets a say in this. So traction trumps opinion. You need to get traction. Uh, Other people's opinions don't count if it's working, because if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid.
0: Thinking about the future of the ecosystem, are we on the right path? Are we on the wrong path? Um, what What do you think? What What needs to change? What are, What do people need to hear? Look, it's doing exceptionally well.
1: You know, for all the talk in the last week or so about people not investing in Australia, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the whole net zero debate that's going on. Well, I, I would say that the $40 billion investment that Stripe made into Afterpay says that's a load of crap. Excuse me. So, you know, we're actually going quite well, if you know what I mean. So, um, so we, we have to be... Not, not, not getting down on ourselves. We've just got, uh, you know, the, the Canva's been amazing, obviously at last year. So there are some incredible things happening. So if we'll probably stopped beating ourselves up that we're not doing well, it would be a good start. But I think we have to be really careful about how fragile it is. And I'll, I'll go back to that change in 2009 on employee share option plans that literally left vacant the field. It, it, was, it, it, it gutted the ability for Australian startups to actually pay employee share option. That's been mostly fixed. They could have gone further in fixing it, but that's, you know, that's a discussion around the edges. As, as one example the last election, our industry supported a political party that was going to halve the capital gains tax exemptions when you sold shares. So it would have meant that investors in the textile space, instead of getting a 50% capital gains tax exemption, would get 25 it, Do you think there'd be more or less investment in this space? So I think you'd be, be really careful. You need, to, you need to look at exactly what changes to ecosystem and changes to regulations will do. Thank God that government didn't get in do that because it would have actually been a, 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 an atomic bomb going across the sector uh, it wouldn't have gotten up because there would have been that much fury over it to be honest and, and so we, we have to be really really careful with, with what we ask for in the current debate regarding 708 investors and sophisticated high net worth investors with respect to the wealth bar about people wanting it increased is is just mindset ludicrous so for me it's about Things that feel good need to be thought through and the unintended consequences need to be looked at really hard because I've been in business a long time and I've seen that much done and the unintended consequences have just have, have, have debilitated sectors. So let's be very careful when we ask for the government to do something, what usually happens, and it's never usually that good, excuse me. So that being said as well, what we need to do is to continue to deregulate. There are still regulated parts of the Australian economy. We've only received another twelve month extension on it might have six month extension. I think it's now March next year. So we can still use DocuSign for various documents. So that's not permanent. Right now it has to be re enabled in March next year. Why is it we're still licking a stamp and, 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 and using wet ink to contract with each other? So let's push a lot of this stuff forward. Let's, let's deregulate. You know, in, an injury, in an industry sense, we have the pharmacies and, and, and the medical sector still being quite problematic with respect to the level of regulation. So there's a bunch of things that the government can do to actually, instead of getting the pencil out and writing a new rule, they can get the rubber out and, and, and take out. That will actually arm us better for the future.
0: But I'll, I'll go back to access to capital. I'll go back to uh, making it easy. I'll go back to availability of staff the last question i have is what makes you different what what makes that um a 20 23 year old was it uh yep. decide to go out and leave the army and go into business as opposed to anything else like what what about business
1: look you know I, at 23 if i knew how hard it was going to be at times i don't know if i would have done it um one of the chaps i've enjoyed backing the most and his business didn't didn't go well at all you know, I cooked up about six hundred and thirty grand, but you know, I was, you know, I fully respected what the the, the two founders in that business did. Um, they left nothing on the table, if you know what I mean. So that I've I've got no ill will at all. But I remember once when he was pivoting the business quite hard. He wasn't even pivoting; he was adding a new, he was adding a new plank to his strategy, I suppose, and not not discarding with the others. And I'm like, do you have any idea what that's going to take? And he goes, you know, I've found that before you start something like this, you've got to thoroughly underestimate it and ignore it all. <laughs> so, um. And business is just hard, you know. If you don't want to, if you want an easy life, don't get in the business. If you just don't want to have to think, don't get in the business. But um, it, it's, it's exceptionally rewarding. It, it's, you know, and it's the way that you can change the world. It, it's one true way that you can change the world. A lot of people can change the world, for example, if they become priests or politicians, right? Um, but you know, so for politicians, you know, it's hard to get into, and it, it's also it's really hard to do things, and you've got to compromise too much. With the business, you get to set your own way. You get to You get to employ people, you get to, you know, provide a product that people want. If they don't want it, you'll go broke, so you'll you'll, you'll have to either go broke or change that. So I I regard enterprise uh, entrepreneurship as as, as one of the highest callings and endeavours in a free society.